It's 1925 in Buenos Aires, Argentina. For the first time since Parley P. Pratt came to Chile in 1851, church leadership sends missionaries to South America. Led by Apostle Melvin J. Ballard, the church humbly plants a small seed of the restored gospel. That seed eventually grows into a mighty oak tree of strength. The challenging start of the miraculous growth of the church in South America is next in Chapter 16, Written in Heaven. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints podcast. I'm James Perry. And I'm Shailen Back. Joining us today is Fred Williams, a professor emeritus of literature and culture in Portuguese and Spanish at Brigham Young University. And we also have with us Jeremy Talmadge, the Latin American and Caribbean church history manager here in the church history department. Thank you both for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Fred, it's a pleasure to have you on. Now, you have some strong connections to the history of the church in South America, and you've spent time there yourself. I wonder if you could just give us a little bit more insight into what these connections are with the church in South America and your family. Well, perhaps I could start even earlier. I bear the name of the counselor of uh, Joseph Smith in the First Presidency. And so the connection with South America starts actually with the Lamanites in the United States. Then his son was the first Surgeon General in Utah and worked among the Native Americans and was on a mission in Smithfield for three years. Then his son was part of the group that went to Colonia Dublan in Mexico and again worked with them. And then, of course, my father as a young man, when he was 18, was called on a mission to South America, then returned as mission president in Argentina and returned again as the first mission president in Uruguay and on private business was in Peru and started the church there. In my own experience, I was born in the mission field in Argentina, left when I was two, then returned as a missionary, having already learned Spanish fluently. I was surprised to be called on a mission to Brazil, where I learned Portuguese. Maybe I'll just share this little side note. When I was ready to be serving a mission, I knew that the Lord had prepared me to be able to be a missionary speaking Spanish, because there was no MTC in those days. And yet I wanted to learn another language. I wanted to know a different culture. I was thinking of Europe, but I never expressed that as a prayer. But the Lord knew and called me to Brazil, whose language was close enough to Spanish that I could be a missionary hitting the ground day one. I later returned as mission president in uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, and then again as temple president in Recife, Brazil. My wife is a matron. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, and, and thank you for joining us. Now, Jeremy, we've had many different people on the podcast from the Church History Department. I'd love it if perhaps you could tell us what it is that you and your team do and how they contributed to this volume of saints. Yes. So my team and I work to help collect, preserve, and share church history through all of the countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. And so we're actively involved in reaching out to members to capture their stories and the records that they've created. 
We've set up records preservation centers or mini libraries throughout the nations of Latin America that can hold and keep those records. And then we're also actively involved with sharing those stories with church members. Well, thank you. We're so excited to have both of you on the podcast today. At this point in the volume, it's been a long time since the church has reached out to South America. Since the earliest missionaries in in the 1850s, there hasn't really been any contact. Do we know why this is the case? Well, I can guess. The first contact with the church in South America was under President Parley P. Pratt, the apostle, who was the mission president over the Pacific Mission with a nominal headquarters in San Francisco. And it included every nation who was bathed by the Pacific Ocean. And so he chose to go down to the southern district of his mission, which was Chile. He went with his wife and a companion. But political turmoil, church and state, the Catholic Church was quite strong, of course. And opposition, and particularly his not knowing Spanish, really put the kibosh on that experience. And his report back to the church, I think, probably discouraged any further work in South America. Yeah. So, Parley P. Pratt served a mission to Chile from 1851 to 1852, but met some initial resistance there and had some difficulties finding converts. And he left unsuccessful. The following year, There was actually missionaries that were assigned to British Guyana, but were unable to fulfill their mission at that time. But the possibilities of extending missionary work to South America remained in the minds of church leaders. In 1901, actually, the Quorum of the Twelve discussed the possibility of sending missionaries again to South America and remembered that Lorenzo Snow had talked about looking for openings for the gospel. In 1923, Assistant Church Historian Andrew Jensen actually goes on a trip to South America. And as part of that voyage, he prepares a report for the First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve. He spent nine days of that trip in Buenos Aires, and he was extremely impressed by the city, and he wrote a glowing review about the prospects for missionary work. And so shortly thereafter, that opening for the church in South America that church leaders had been looking for came. Well, thank you. That helps us better understand why it took so long for the church to reattempt an effort at sharing the gospel, but it sounds as if they were thinking about it at numerous points. Perhaps you could help us understand another important aspect of South American history. And today, when we think of Brazil or Argentina or Chile, we think of Spanish speakers, we speak of Portuguese speakers in Brazil. But here in the volume, we're finding that there are some Germans in Argentina and in Brazil. And I wonder if you could just tell us why. Why are there German speakers there in South America? Well, as you know, the 19th century was the century of transatlantic migration. About 100 years, if you start about 1820 to about 1930, the bulk of the Europeans coming over came to the United States. But the second country was Argentina. The third country was Brazil. And they came not only from Germany and Spain and Italy, but from all over, from Russia, and etc. And of course, they came because all of the countries in Europe were monarchies. And there was a great difference between the lower classes and their opportunities. And so the shining city on the hill was the United States, where they could do that, or the Americas, not just the United States. You might be interested to know that in 1914, 
Buenos Aires, half of the population, 49%, were foreign-born. And many of them were Germans. Many more were Italians. In Sao Paulo, they have a joke. Half of the city of Sao Paulo descends from Italians. The other half is Italian. And I think specifically to the issue of why there are Germans in Argentina at this time, you have to look at the history in Germany that's taking place, the economic uncertainty following the First World War. There's a, a period of hyperinflation that takes place that pushes many Germans to seek refuge in the New World. At the end of World War I, one U.S. dollar was equivalent to roughly four German marks. But at the height of the crisis in 1923, when the Friedrich and Hopp families make their way to Argentina, one U.S. dollar is equivalent to roughly 4.2 trillion with the T marks. And so you have these famous stories of people burning stacks of money as that was cheaper than purchasing firewood. And if you think of the logistics of that, if you're trying to go and purchase a loaf of bread, you'll need a wheelbarrow full of money to do so. So I think that's some of the reasons why these families found their way to Argentina. Thank you both for sharing that additional context to help us better understand this part of the chapter and its significance. For the next question, migration appears to have been important with regards to how the church opened up in South America. And just as a comparison, to what extent did this occur in other countries during the early to mid-20th century? To follow up on what Jeremy was saying, Germans and Italians and Russians and French came to South America because there are already great numbers of those peoples there. And so they already had contacts. They even had relatives. So it was an easy choice to do that. But to be more specific about what other countries received, all of the countries did. Brazil and Peru especially received a number of Japanese people. And Brazil had the largest population of Japanese outside of Japan. And to this day, many Brazilians who are descendants from Japan serve missions in Japan. They have a very strong Portuguese mission in Japan. Yes, and I would just say that during the early 20th century, tens of millions of immigrants come to America, to the United States, to Argentina, to Brazil, and to other locations. And they're really looking for economic opportunities, cheap or free land at times, and steady jobs and growing factories. The world is undergoing a period of industrialization and urbanization at this time, and those people are making their ways to America and connecting with their families that have taken the trip before them. Well, thank you for that. I know as I was researching for this volume, it was amazing to see in Uruguay, we have some French members that have moved over to Montevideo. And Fred, your family were instrumental in getting the church started in Peru and amongst other places. So it's amazing to see that South America as a continent, as an area, has been so heavily influenced by migration and the church as a result of that has emerged in many of these locations as a result of people making big choices about their life and taking the gospel with them. Well, let's turn our attention to the arrival of these church missionaries and church leaders. We have Elder Melvin J. Ballard, Ray L. Pratt, and Rulon S. Wells. Can you tell us why they specifically were selected for this assignment? I can put some light on that. When my father and I wrote a book about the beginnings of the church in South America, I was at the time studying at BYU, and my major 
advisor, professor, was Garrett DeYoung, Jr., for whom the concert hall in the Harris Fine Arts Building is named. He was the first fine arts dean. And so I got his influence. The two German families, the Friedrichs and the Hoops, were writing to the presiding bishop who spoke German and was saying, we have friends who are interested in the church. Eventually, when Brother Nibley became a member of the First Presidency, that information was retained by the brethren. And so they asked the question, well, who could we send? Who would be a good mission president who could speak both German and Spanish? And the answer came back, only one person, Garrett de Jong. But he had just been called to be the dean of the college. And so it was decided, well, we better send people who speak Spanish, who speak German. And so two people from the Quorum of the 70s, the oldest was Rulin S. Wells, who spoke German, and then Brother Rael Pratt, who spoke Spanish. He'd been the mission president in Mexico, who was, in fact, the grandson of Parley P. Pratt. And then the apostle, the youngest of the three, Melvin J. Ballard. There's an interesting thing that occurred when they first were down there teaching with the German investigators and members. When Brother Wells became sick and had to return quite early, Brother Ballard would teach in English. Brother Pratt would then translate into Spanish. And then a young 14-year-old German Argentine would translate into German. And so that's how the meeting was run. I just find it so interesting that at the time... There were both German and Spanish-speaking missionaries and members in the area. And I'm just wondering, first of all, how did the church manage the languages and manage the work with both of those languages? And then what were some of the most successful methods for sharing the gospel in Argentina? I think that for a while there, for both members and missionaries, it was a little bit of an awkward situation trying to communicate between the languages. You have the story in this chapter about Hertha helping to translate from English to Spanish and from Spanish to German and the other way around. It was also difficult for Elder Ballard and the other missionaries of trying to communicate with people. Elder Ballard leaves an incredible record of trying to proselyte in Buenos Aires and his inability to communicate with people on the streets. But um, nevertheless, he was quite faithful and passed out literally thousands of gospel tracts to people on the streets trying to get them interested in the church. And what happened, of course, is Brother Wells had gotten sick and went home, and then Brother Pratt got sick. And so it left only Elder Ballard, but instead of just staying home, that's when he would go out and start distributing these tracts to anybody on the street. And that started bringing people to see their slideshows on Utah, on the church, on supposed Book of Mormon lands. Well, I wonder if you could tell us anything else about the slideshows and about any other technologies that the church was using in South America in these early years. And then perhaps you could tell us a little bit about how these were received by the people. Well, who principally received them were the children. (laughs) They were fascinated by this. Of course, movies in those days were all silent movies, and so the projectors were all silent as well. So you'd have to talk about these things. And the projector they used inside the hall, but also against the wall of the home where they were. 
among the children, and I can share this now, one of the children was Antonio Gianfelice. And he shared with his family what he'd been learning. And one of the things was, you need to pray over your food. And his father said, well, where did you hear that? Oh, well, from the Americans. Eventually, he invited the brothers to come over to their home and teach them how to pray. And uh, that Gianfelice family was one of the stalwarts. That young boy became the first patriarch in Argentina. His father was a counselor in the first member presidency. A daughter, Sarah, was one of the first missionaries that served in Uruguay. Anyway, the children absolutely loved what they were doing, and they were always chaotic. It was the thing that just drove them crazy. Yes, I think the missionaries initially express a little bit of frustration with their inability to attract adults to their meetings. And they were in some way stuck teaching these children. And, you know, you have these wonderful episodes of Elder Ballard, an apostle teaching children how to sing. And that's the best way that he could find to share the gospel. But of course, all those efforts um, eventually bore fruit. People would hear the singing on the streets and come in interested about the meetings. Children would go home and begin sharing the gospel through song with their families. And so while slow at first, these efforts did bear fruit. I love to hear that. And Fred, I love that you had that example of the little boy who became the stake patriarch. It's amazing to see where those seemingly small efforts led. It's pretty amazing. Well, you mentioned Elder Ballard a little bit, and it's no surprise how he would feel overwhelmed by these new surroundings in the Southern Hemisphere, especially not speaking the language, trying to navigate just everyday life. But could you help us better understand what Buenos Aires was like at the time? Well, in 1870, Buenos Aires had little over 200,000 inhabitants. By 1914, there were well over 2 million but there were no sewer systems in that day. And because it's flat land, when it rained, it flooded. And it would come up very high. And it would leave mud. And it would stop all the trains. It would stop all the carts. It would stop all the streetcars and buses. When my father reported his mission uh, after his return to Elder Ballard, he talked about the mud and Elder Ballard said, oh, my goodness, that's the thing I remember the most. Mud everywhere, very difficult to move. Anyway, the inability to move with streetcars and other things meant that you rolled up your pants and trudged through the water and mud. I think Buenos Aires at the time in 1925, when they arrive, is a rapidly modernizing and growing city with heavy European influences. Buenos Aires is a port city. And so wheat and beef from the interior of the country would make its way to the port to be shipped to foreign markets. There's factories coming up, but also with modernization and urbanization come certain social problems. There's shanty towns being created and you have this incredible wealth present in Buenos Aires, but also quite a bit of poverty. About a decade before the missionaries arrive, there's the first subway created in all of Latin America in Buenos Aires. And it's also an incredibly diverse city. Fred mentioned this before, but at the time, about half of the population of Buenos Aires is foreign-born, so it has a very European feel to it. Well, thank you both for that. Well, we wanted to switch gears a little bit 
This chapter also covers the very important topic and difficult topic of priesthood and temple restriction at this time. And this will prove to have an impact on the church in South America as well. It's one of the most controversial topics in church history, and Saints has addressed it particularly in Volume 2 and now again in Volume 3. And we would love to just hear from both of you, how and when did this become a barrier for the church in South America? Well, it was a barrier, of course, from day one in South America, because it was a barrier in the United States and elsewhere. My mission president was William Grant Bangader, and he gave us some very wonderful special lessons. He did not restrict us from teaching black people, but said that before we could baptize them, we had to teach them about the restriction on the priesthood. That was also a problem when my father was mission president in both Argentina and Uruguay. And as branch president in Peru, when Apostle Kimball at that time came through, he mentioned to him about this family that had a young man and a father who were worthy to receive the priesthood, but they couldn't be sure about his lineage. And President Kimball said to my father, give them the priesthood, give them the benefit of the doubt. And so, yes, I think the priesthood restriction is really a barrier from the beginning in South America. Even before church leaders go down to South America, they express some concerns about expanding into South America. And for a number of years afterwards, uh, missionary work was limited to certain cities or certain locations within these countries. A lot of time we think of race as a uniquely American problem, but the Atlantic slave trade brought about 11.2 million Africans to the Americas, and only about 500,000 of those came to the United States. So if you do the math there, that's about 5% to the U.S., and about 95% of Africans who came via the Atlantic slave trade went to countries in Latin America. And so Afro-Latinos are common in many countries in South America. And church leaders, as the church expanded into South America, were faced with this issue and the complexity of upholding the priesthood restriction and sharing the gospel. A complexity and a challenge that would continue with the church until the 1978 priesthood revelation. Well, thank you both for that. Of course, in this chapter, we're introduced also to Len and Mary Hope and the challenges they face and racist attitudes held by Latter-day Saints and non-Latter-day Saints makes for hard reading. What can individual Latter-day Saints do today to overcome and work past this long and difficult period of our history? I think uh, Latter-day Saints are uniquely positioned to have a greater understanding of racial issues, having more knowledge about the brotherhood and sisterhood of the entire human family. And that while attitudes of racial or ethnic superiority have been with us since probably the beginning of time, they're really not part of the gospel. And that the Lord's invitation to repent and to love others is extended to all of us, um, not just non-members of the church. And so I think we can find examples and learn lessons from Brother Hope's experience, for example, in Alabama when he's threatened with uh, lynching from a mob that members of the church were there to assure him that he is loved by his Heavenly Father, and we can do similar things in our lives today. It was really sad to read in the chapter about some members getting caught up in attitudes that are not taught by the gospel. And as with many stories and developments in saints, we've often found these parallels with contemporary issues. And we also read about 
hate groups seeking to marginalize, demean, and even hurt and kill Black people specifically, and then other minority communities as well. And we read about the variations in Black Latter-day Saint experiences and how at times they were ostracized too. So some of them did have good experiences. But on the other hand, it was inspiring to me to see how senior church leaders rejected meetings with the Ku Klux Klan. In thinking about all of these experiences that members were having and different attitudes they were having. What are some lessons that you think readers could and and maybe should take away from reading about this topic in this chapter? Well, I think as Jeremy said, the gospel is for all of God's children. We are one family, and that is expressed in the scriptures over and over. I really think that that's a great point, that the scriptures really need to serve as our guide, and the gospel needs to inform our decisions. And as we can see in this episode, that our opinions and our thoughts shouldn't be swayed by current or popular ideas, no matter where they come from or how well accepted they are in our culture. Well, in this chapter, I love the the mention we have of Herta Kulik, who's helping in the church to translate. And and sometimes there are other Latter-day Saint women and girls who contribute to the church, but they're perhaps overlooked in the grand history of things. I wonder if you could tell us about any other South American Latter-day Saint men or women who have made an impact on the work, but have perhaps lost the notice in history that they deserve. Yeah, I think Herta's role, she fills um, admirably as a, a missionary and a translator. And I thought of a couple of women who played a similar role in South America. One of them is in Buenos Aires is Maria Olmo. Like Herta, her grandmother had also had a dream that she would find the true church. And so during World War II, and then there's a shortage of missionaries, she serves as a sister missionary in Buenos Aires during this important time, setting a great example for both Herta and Maria set this example for thousands of sister missionaries that will later serve in the church. And the other one is Roberta Hunt. Her family had immigrated to Brazil from the United States. And so she, like Herta, grew up bilingual. And later on, Roberta will prove instrumental in translating the Doctrine and Covenants into Portuguese. So I think there are many great women, um, young women, in fact, who have fulfilled this role and have served the church with their talents. Just to conclude this podcast episode, what do you two hope readers might take away from this chapter? I've included four things. Number one, the work of the Lord commences among the nations of the world on his timetable. He does it in his own way by placing individuals in the right place at the right time who will respond to the Spirit. Second, often it was women who were more sensitive to the Spirit, that were the means to accomplish the Lord's purposes. Third, the work progressed in spite of many obstacles, such as cultural and language differences, political and religious opposition, lack of scriptures in Spanish, the challenges of poverty and limited means among the citizenry, and very, very few missionaries. And fourth, the promise of the Lord are always fulfilled. The acorn began to grow slowly, but in time, it would become the mighty oak and its branches would spread. I feel there's a lot we can learn from two of the main characters in this story, Herta Kulik and Len Hope. First, with Herta, I think we can learn that Heavenly Father can use our talents whoever we are. Um, Herta was just a young teenage girl who found herself in Buenos Aires 
but played an incredibly important role in the history of the church simply because she was willing to serve and use her talents. And then from Len Hope, I'm inspired by the importance of obtaining and being true to your testimony. I believe for the Hope family, it was not easy to be members of the church. Wherever they went throughout their lives, they were told that their presence made others uncomfortable, and they were ostracized sometimes by their brothers and sisters in the gospel for being different and feeling unwanted. But nevertheless, they remained committed to their knowledge given to them by their Heavenly Father. Thank you both so very much for joining us in today's episode. It's been wonderful to have you and to gain so many more interesting insights into the church in South America. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And for our listeners, we covered some really important topics today. And if there's anything that you want to go ahead and study a little bit further, we invite you to read the church history topics. We have topics such as racial segregation and priesthood and temple restriction. So we hope you'll explore those too, expand your own knowledge and answer your questions. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you.